0: like this. If it bleeds, it leads. If it bleeds, it leads. Meaning the more disastrous, the more shocking, the more dramatic the story, the more likely it's going to be in the lead portion of the broadcast. And uh, so some studies were done. An eight-year run in the U.S., Where the murder rate across the nation was actually declining by 20%, and the news stories that were leading about murder stories went up by 600%. And this is what some in the media industry have coined now a little term, a little phrase in their world. And the phrase is this fear for profit. Fear for profit. In other words, stir up in the hearts of the public a greater degree of fear and you might find at the end of that quarter a greater margin of profit on the bottom line. Fear for profit. Listen to how Dan Allender writes about it. I put this quote in your notes sheet. Go ahead and pull out your notes if you haven't done so already. Dan Allender is a professor out on the West Coast, teaches in the Christian counseling arena. He wrote a book called The Cry of the Soul. It says, different people fear different things with different levels of intensity, but all of us fear what we cannot control. Fear is our response to uncertainty about our resources in the face of disaster. When we are assaulted by a force that overwhelms us and compels us to face that we are helpless and out of control. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, physical or relational, exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. So now it's into this culture of rampant fear that we open up this God-breathed book and we read words like these. God says in Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear for I am with you. Psalm 46 too, therefore we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Jesus in Matthew 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, verse 25, he says, do not worry about your life. And he didn't put any parentheses on it like little exceptional clauses. He just said, don't worry about your life. And then verse 34, he added a little more to it. Don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough Trouble of its own, to which anyone who lives enough life says, amen. Plenty of trouble on this day. Jesus says, don't worry about the next day. And then John 14:1, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Now, what's kind of a, an immediate reaction when we read those kinds of words, even in an election year, of all things? You read those words, and sometimes internally you go, well, That's kind of some nice spiritual counsel. That's like one of those, you know, therapeutic things. It's good to kind of dream about that kind of a life, but it's not really practical. There's not really an actual expectation that we would live this way. That's sometimes our initial reaction to words like this. And I don't want to in any way this morning discount the complexity of and the significance of various anxiety-related disorders. That there are physiological issues, there are psychological issues, there's relational history issues, there's spiritual issues. There's a degree of emotional brokenness that warrants a depth of professional counsel, medication, all the right care. I'm not gonna, di- there absolutely is an arena for all of that. But what I want us to see this morning I want to invite us into the yoke of Jesus and actually begin to think about the kind of life where fear, anxiety, and worry no longer have the upper hand. Can you imagine this kind of a life? Jesus seems to think it's not just something you imagine. He actually thinks you could practically experience the kind of life where worry, anxiety, and fear... Do not have the upper hand. No matter how dark the past, no matter how broken the history, no matter the depth of the valley and the complexity of the issues, Jesus says, there is something to experience in my yoke. There is a kind of a life where you can actually live with a deep-seated internal peace. The passage we're going to look at in a moment says, The peace that transcends all understanding. And did you know that peace is a gift that is received and it is a lifestyle that's learned? It's both. I want you to think back when you first met Jesus one of the experiences in that personal interaction with Jesus is you walked away from receiving Jesus grace the holy spirit coming to live within you and there was a greater degree of peace in your soul that is a gift you receive the bible says you're set to be in peace with god and there's a shalom like wholeness and integratedness a putting things together the way they're supposed to be. Augustine says, rightly ordered loves of the heart. There's something that happened in the interior places of your heart where things were set right in that moment when you came to Christ. And in that, there was a gift of peace. Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. You receive peace as a gift. It comes with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And, hear me now, you learn to live a lifestyle of peace in the changing component. You're changed in a moment. You receive peace and the capacity for a greater degree of that peace. And then you're on a journey. Because did you notice when you first came to Christ, you weren't zapped with a worry-free life? Anybody notice that? It's like, wow, just one day I was worried, I was choked and strangled with concern, and the next day I'm not at all. That's not how that works. There are degrees of this, and this is the changed and changing. This is a gift received and a lifestyle learned. And what we're going to focus on this morning is what's involved with learning the lifestyle where fear, worry, and anxiety no longer have to have the upper hand. Because Jesus seems to paint the picture that is actually normal life in his yoke. I don't know about you, I'd like to taste more of that. And so the passage we're going to anchor ourselves today is Philippians chapter 4. Here's Paul's language to what he heard, no doubt, Jesus talking about and witnessed in Jesus' life. Paul said it this way. Do not be anxious about anything. Underline anything, but in everything, underline everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. And what's the next? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I call this the anything, everything prayer. Have you experienced the anything, everything prayer? This is the lifestyle where you are, there's no grounds to worry about anything. Why? Because the good shepherd has everything firmly in his hand. And the character of the good shepherd is loving and kind and wise and generous and strong. And so he's the one who says, I've got this firmly in my hands. And if you live in Jesus' yoke, you are relating, you are experiencing life with this good shepherd. So in the midst of anything you experience, the grounds for worry and anxiety really are removed because everything is in his hands. It's the anything, everything prayer. Thomas Kelly, in his book, Testament of Devotion, I commend it to you if you've never read it, Thomas Kelly, Testament of Devotion, he talked about a term called simultaneity. This is Thomas Kelly's description of anything, everything prayer. Simultaneity is this. Kelly talks about the ability the brain has to process multiple things at one time. Yes, even for men. Come on, men. Don't give me that look. You know what I'm talking about. Even we as men have the ability to process more than one thing at a time. It might be one and a half, but we're still there, one and a little bit. But Kelly talks about under this banner that there is a kind of life that you can begin to experience with Christ where you deal with the demands of the everyday. The pressing concerns of the day, you live in your current realities, as broken and complicated, as messed up as they may be. You live in that, and then simultaneously, you are carrying on a dialogue with your good Father. And as you're living in the demands of the everyday, you are whispering, Father, what would you have me do in this situation? Father, what's on your heart for this person or circumstance? God, what would you have me to do? Simultaneity, present to people and circumstances and present to God, all to the same moment. All right there, all interwoven together so you might be seated beside the bed of a loved one whose body is fading away and you're becoming a parent to your parents, perhaps some of you. And simultaneously seated by that bed, you're saying, Father, how would you have me respond in this moment? Father, what would you have me to do? Father, what do you have to say? Or you're dealing with a wayward teenager, or you got a report from the doctor and it's got a bunch of questions on it, or the job situation is going the wrong direction, the bank account's going south, and all the current demands, and then simultaneity, simultaneously to living in the everydayness, you cultivate a communion that is ongoing. It's the lifestyle of anything and everything prayer. But there's no grounds to be anxious about anything because in everything, what's, the, what's Paul say? By prayer. So this is the muscle we're going to work, not only today, but all through this week. If we want to see the grip of worry and anxiety loosen around our heart, here's the muscle we got to work back. Because all through this series, we're talking about what can we do with our direct effort that in the hands of the Spirit enables us to become and do something that we can't do right now by direct effort. Has anybody put the post-it note on the mirror, or on the dashboard that says, don't worry? How's that working out? It, usually, it might work for maybe 15 minutes, or until the next thing goes AWOL in the office, or the family drama jumps off the edge, or, or the finance thing this, or, or you read the wrong headlines, and all of a sudden, inside of you just wells up this... The term I put in your notes that Paul uses for anxious, do not be anxious, is the term merim naho. Say that with me, merim naho. It means to be strangled or choked with concern. Did you, do you know that when you come out of the womb, you don't have to learn how to do that? Do you know that we come by that very naturally? To live the kind of life that is strangled or choked with concern about everything mainly about all the stuff that's out of our control, like Allender's quote said. It's the stuff that gets outside of the control areas of our life where we get most tempted, right, to get all wound up with what about this and what if this and where is this going and all of this uncertainty and what rises within us, the old self, the old life, the before you met Jesus life. You just have a default mode before you meet Jesus That is Merim Naho. You just say, hello, Merim Naho. You just roll out the red carpet for Merim Naho. When you encounter all the demands of the everydayness and all the stuff that you know. And by the way, the older you get, the more you realize how you're not nearly as in control as you thought you were when you were younger. So when you're younger, you've got this kind of uh, youthful rose-colored glasses that you got the world by the tail on all these fronts, and then you keep living and you realize, wow, I'm not nearly in control as I think I am. And in your before Jesus, old self, old life, it's roll out the red carpet for an increasing amount of anxiety and fear and worry that will choke the interior life out of you. That's why if you interact with any physicians... They'll talk about in North America the trend for anxiety-related disorders in our culture. It's it's just astounding. The one culture on the planet that is the most comfortable, most technologically advanced, most educated, right? All of the things given to us, the greatest lifespan, they have the ability to overcome all these other physical obstacles. But what's one trend that's going off the charts the wrong direction? It's Maram It's having a life that is completely wound up and choked with concern, worry, fear. It binds the inside of a life and can literally choke life out of you. So old self, old life before Jesus life, you just, you just breathe and you're going that direction. You don't have to learn anything about it. But then you meet Jesus and you encounter these kinds of words and you go, Jesus actually has the expectation there's another way to live. And when I hear his words, I go, that's a whole lot different than living Merim Naho. And Paul picked up on all that, and he just puts, don't be anxious about anything. And the pathway he gives us, he says, here's the cultivation. Go anything, everything prayer. Live this lifestyle of simultaneity in the midst of all you are encountering, and what you will see is a loosening of the grip of Merim around your heart. It is a gift received and a lifestyle that is embraced and learned. And Paul, no doubt, witnessed in Jesus' life a scene like we're going to read about now in Mark chapter 9. You can turn your Bibles to Mark 9 or follow along up here on the screen. Here's a scene in Mark 9 that I think Paul perhaps may have had in mind when he wrote Philippians 4. This is a scene where Jesus' disciples have been given a task that they are a little overwhelmed by. Anybody been in that boat before where Jesus asked you to do something that you think you're a little in over your head? On. In this case, they were asked to drive out a demonic spirit out of this young boy. They can't do it. It appears like they've met their match. So there's quite a crowd stirring and a scene is developing. Verse 15, Mark 9, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. I love that phrase. I want that kind of relationship with Jesus, overwhelmed with wonder and run to greet him. Do you know Jesus that way? That the more you get to know his love and his grace and his wisdom and his generosity and his goodness, that it just overwhelms you with wonder and you're propelled to just run and greet him. That's shalom life, gang, right there. That that would just be everyday life, overwhelmed with wonder, that I get to live this one and only life with this Jesus That's this crowd. They're just overwhelmed. He's coming on the scene. And notice what he asks them. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. Interesting. I brought you my son. Who did they bring the son to? They brought him to the disciples, which is a really interesting connection in the scriptures here, I think, because it was the people of Jesus who represented the person of Jesus, so it was in the, in the mind of the father's heart that he was bringing this sick child to Jesus when he was bringing him to Jesus' people, the disciples. Well, I'm challenged by that. Would people, would people have the perception that perhaps we who use the label Christian, which that term means little Christ, you don't adopt the title Christian lightly. It means that you then represent Jesus so here, they're bringing a sick boy to the people of Jesus, expecting Jesus to do something about it. Wow, I'm challenged by that. They bring, he goes, I brought him to you. Well, I actually brought him to your disciples, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Rough day for disciple world right there. They're like, well, we're, we're, we're losing this one. Verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do, underline anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, underline everything is possible for him who believes. Anything, everything. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. Anybody been there? You know, Lord, I do believe. I just need your help to overcome my next step of belief. Did you notice how the boy's father is doing what he can in the strength that he has and he's trusting God to do what he can't do on his own? That's a good picture for the spiritual life. The The boy's father does what he can in the strength that he does have. He brings the boy to the disciples and now to Jesus, he's doing what he can And then he's asking God, asking, help me with my unbelief. Do what I can't do on my own. I can't fix this. He's standing before Jesus with the great unfixables of life. Anybody been there? Will you just hold out the great unfixables of life and say, Jesus, help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe you can do something about this. Now would you do something? Because I can't. That's the boy's father. Verse 25, when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, He rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately. I imagine this had to be quite a scene, right? They're tracking him down, going, why couldn't we drive it out? Key sentence, verse 29, he replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Yet, what's the one thing in the story we don't read Jesus doing, obviously? He didn't pray, at least not overtly. This kind can only come out by prayer. Yet when Jesus is thrust into the demands of that moment and all the chaos around it, a demon-possessed boy, a a kind of strained father begging for help, disciples who don't even know what to do, they're just overwhelmed. He's thrust into all that, a crowd that keeps growing. He doesn't just pause and pray. He just drives out the demon. And the demon flees with one loud shriek. You say, well, he gets a pass because he's Jesus. He's like the son of God, you know. He just doesn't need to have the obvious time of prayer. That's how sometimes we can. I think it's deeper than that. I think it's deeper than that. I think it's Jesus modeling for us what Philippians 4 lifestyle. I think Jesus is modeling for us simultaneity. I think Jesus is modeling for us that he's already cultivated a rhythm of anything, everything prayer which is, by the way, all through the Gospels. How many times do you read Jesus withdrawing from these scenes, not dealing even with the needs with the people and going to a quiet place on a mountainside to what? To pray, to be still, to be with his father, to make sure he knows what the father wants done when he wants it done. Jesus, so here's what I think. I don't think he prays in Mark 9 because I think he's already cultivated a lifestyle where he is praying about everything, Anything and everything prayer is already the breath that Jesus is living, that he's on this scene, he's got this boy right before him in simultaneous simultaneity, he's going, Father, what would you have done here? Set him free in Jesus' name. Be gone, evil spirit, and it's gone. Do you see that? So he had the pressing concerns of what's going on here, and at the same time had the heart of the Father and the presence of mind to know what the Father wants done there. He'd already had a rhythm of praying on his own. There's times for our focused prayer life when we're dialing in and listening kind of alone on the mountainside type prayer. And then there's this lifestyle of anything, everything praying where you carry communion with the Father into your everyday brokenness and mess and complexities. That's living in the yoke of Jesus and as you work that muscle over the course of time, worry and anxiety and fear have no more grounds. This is where Jesus is saying they, they lose all their footing. The footing is gone. If we really could internalize that and live from that place. And I think that's the picture he gives us. Listen to how Mark Buchanan puts it. Buchanan reflects on this story and says You can't play the guitar or the violin. You can't run a marathon. You can't climb a mountain if you don't train. And you can't cast out demons. Meeting with authority, the world's evils and its brokenness head on if you don't pray. This kind only comes out by prayer. If you want to imitate me on the battlefield, imitate me in the boot camp. If you want to stand and deliver when the crisis hits, then get out of bed before the sun gets up. So this past November, I went off to a monastery just west of Bloomington for a couple of days of solitude and just needed to be still and be with the Lord and I retreat off to monasteries periodically, and I hadn't gone to this one before, and I went to the little bookstore at the kind of where you check in, and there was an elderly woman who was getting me my key, and I asked her if anyone else was here as a guest. She said, no, you're the only guest here, which that's a common theme, actually, if you probably have noticed that. Monasteries aren't always the most popular guest (laughs) sites, and especially in the middle of winter in Indiana, but it was a very quiet, there was like 50 rooms, and I was the only one. She says, I'll put you kind of down in the middle of nowhere there, and I said, well, who else is here? Like, am I the only physical person here? She says, oh, no, there are four monks at the top of the hill. There's a little chapel up there, and there's living quarters, and they've been there for years and years and years, and that's where they live and they worship, and you're welcome to join them if you want to sing some psalms and pray, and you can head on to the top of the hill. And she gave me the schedule of the hours. And she says, um, they eat by divine providence. And I said, what does that mean? She says, well, they pray all day long, and they trust that God's gonna provide food for them. And if God doesn't provide food for them, then they're not gonna eat. And they call it eating by divine providence. And she's just kind of filling out my paperwork and telling me the story, and I'm just sitting here just going. I said to her, I said, well, practically, like, how does that work? Like, like what flies in? Like, are there like some, like some ravens that fly in like Elijah by the dry brook and drop some prime rib on their doorstep? What, how does this work? And she looks up at me and has her glasses, kind of pushes her glasses. And she says, well, here's how it practically works is me and the other sisters in the area, we go into Kroger and get him a basket of groceries and we take it up on the hill. <laughs> and she goes like that. Where else do you have these kind of conversations? Only at monasteries in the middle of nowhere with a 70 plus year old woman at a bookstore talking about four monks at the top of the hill. She goes, yeah, we, we know their grocery list, they, we know their preferences, and we just go into town each day and we make sure that they have enough stuff to eat. We've been doing that for years. I just, after, after she handed me my key and I got over the chuckle of that whole scene, I just entered into the quiet space. and at The end of November, I, I went into that time and I felt a lot of internal Maram a lot of where you just feel like the strangling and choked with concern. Do you know there's no counselor like Jesus? Do you know there's some stuff in our lives, gang, that it really only is a one-on-one with Jesus is gonna get at it? I'm not saying others don't have a role, but I, you know what I'm talking about? There's some stuff in the inmost place that only your living Savior And a personal interaction with him is the game changer. That was me at the end of November with a whole wad of stuff. And I just started to settle into the stillness and the quiet. And I just began to talk to the Lord about, at that point it was 30 plus months or so of transitioning from being your associate pastor for all those years into a lead pastor role. And I just... I felt like Jesus led me to the passage in Matthew 11 of the yoke, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, and he just wanted me to reflect on, hey, what you're yoked to affects who you become. And in that, there was this sense from the Lord that I had yoked myself over the course of those 30 months in the lead pastor role. I had yoked myself to growth and outcomes in a way that was affecting the kind of person I was becoming. I didn't like it. And I need to talk to him about it. I needed to unfold this before him. Unwind this wad of merim Naho before him and say, Jesus, help me sort, what is going on? I don't like how I'm responding to the people who I spend the most time with, who I know love and care for me. I don't like the outward responses. I don't like the internal non-spoken response. I don't like all of what is going on. And the, the clearest word I got during that time from me, hey, you've yoked yourself up to growth and outcomes in a way I never asked you to. And practically what that meant was things like, and none of you put this pressure on me, the elders didn't put this pressure on me, the staff didn't put this pressure on me, I did, I'm sure the enemy had a good hand in some of all this, a good little window for him to get his foot in there, whatever it was. But somewhere along the way, I had just internalized this pressure to deal with, well, Help us get out of our growth issues around here. Break the attendance growth thing we've got going on. We've got all this debt. Help us sort out all this debt stuff and get some ministry momentum and vision going around here. Get all this stuff going. And I would internalized all that. And it just begun to settle. And it was like a yoke around me that was affecting who I was becoming. I didn't like it. And I asked, I said, Jesus' name, you break that yoke. And you center me back in the Matthew 11 yoke that is free and burden that is light. I wanna live light and free in you. There's no counselor like Jesus. And I left that time with those four monks. I did not eat by divine providence that way, by the way. I went to town and got my own food, but I worshiped with them. And just listen to him pray the Psalms. And just sat still. And just ask the Lord to forgive me for all the ways I'd internalized all that. Ask him to set me free from all that. And to move this question. The other phrase from that time away was Eric, it's time to shift the question in your lead pastor role from how many to what kind. That was a key phrase. To embrace however many people God chooses to give Eagle Church, however it is, whether it's 10 or 1,000 or whatever he chooses to do, you just embrace developing the right kind of people and leave all the rest to him. So I've been on a numbers fast. Just so you know, I've been on a numbers fast. The staff and the board don't even know this, I don't think. Probably makes some of them a little nervous now to know I haven't paid attention to all that stuff but I figure those around me will, you know, make sure I know when I need to know. So when all of our wonderful, and numbers have a role, don't misunderstand, they have a role, important measure, but it's not the ultimate measure for Jesus and what a healthy spiritual life in a local body is. It's not numbers-driven stuff, right? If Jesus was to step on and assess a healthy church, I don't think he would do it by just numbers of attendance and cars in the parking lot and chairs filled up and numbers of people gathering at all to gather that. I think there's probably deeper levels of assessment, is my point. Shift it from how many to what kind. So I've been on the numbers fast. And probably no coincidence that random people, some of you actually have said to me, say, hey, what's gone on with you over the last couple months? I noticed something's different about your countenance. They don't know any of this stuff. Something's different about your countenance. Or different staff members say, hey, I see something different going on inside of you in an encouraging way. Now, sometimes as a pastor, you get folks who come up to you and say, is everything okay? Are you doing okay? And and a lot of times in that conversation, I go, well, I was. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Anybody had these? You know, you haven't seen quite yourself. I I know you guys do that out of love, but sometimes it's like, oh, I was doing fine until you got me thinking about that. But a number of folks who love me and care for me, family, staff, elders, close friends here, you guys have been very gracious and kind and patient with me on this whole journey. And I just want to share before you that I am committed to live in the yoke of Jesus, free and light in him and all that other stuff I rattled off before. This is his search. It's his deal. I don't know. I don't have an answer. You're gonna get tired of me. You say, I don't know. What are we gonna do with three point whatever million dollars of debt? I'm not sure, but I know Jesus is gonna help us. That's enough for me. Is he with us? I'm confident he's with us. He birthed this place, it's him. What are we gonna do with all this other ministry stuff? I don't know. Jesus is gonna help us though. I'm gonna live light and free in him. My commitment to you is to say yoke to him, listen to his voice, and lead us accordingly. And if you detect in any way that that's not taking place, I'm giving you permission to walk up and place your hand on my forearm, pastor. You sure everything's okay? That's a good time to ask me. And gang, I don't think that's just reserved for pastors. I don't think you have to run off to a monastery for that. Though I do think this, there is some layers of Maranaho running around in the inmost place of some of our lives and you know exactly what I'm talking about. That if you wanna see some freedom from some of that, it is gonna require an intentionality of carving out some time and some space, probably longer than you like or prefer to get to those deeper places. Because sometimes this kind only comes out by prayer. And sometimes only with that kind of personal encounter with the Christ who gave you life. in the midst of whatever out of controlness, whatever brokenness, whatever history and past, all that stuff that gets wound up and when you feel like the choked and concerned places and the grip is getting so strong, I wanna invite you, you don't have to go to the monastery in Bloomington, but I wanna invite you into some quiet space. I wanna invite you to experience anything and everything prayer. I wanna invite you into a lifestyle where peace gets the upper hand peace. It's a gift received and it's a lifestyle embraced and learned. And if there hasn't been as much internal or external peace in your world as you like, I hope today you say, you know what? I come to you, Jesus, whom is given the title, the Prince of Peace. So here's what we're going to do as we go to the communion table in just a few moments. We're going to participate in a little spiritual formation exercise. Here's the exercise for the week. So some of you have been asking about, hey, what's the practice for the week this week? Last week, last couple weeks, I had you in Psalm 23 stuff. This week, your spiritual exercise is of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And I put, it's up here on the screen, it's in your notes. I'd like you to pull out the white index card that you were handed in your bulletin. Ushers, if you could make your way through the aisles, if you need something to write with, I need everyone to have something to write with. Or if you're more of a tech-based person and you're like, "This is way too old school for me," Simpson, pull out your phone, click on Notepad. Fine, that's fine. Just do something here to engage, right? I I prefer this because I'm probably you know 46 years old. That's why I prefer this. But if you want to go the tech route, that's fine. My point is, do this, get this out. And I want you to write this sentence at the top of the note card or on your phone at the top of the Notepad. Put, "I am a child of God." one in whom Christ dwells, and I am living in the unshakable kingdom of God. I want you to write that sentence at the top of your note card. I am a child of God, one in whom Christ dwells, and I am living in the unshakable kingdom of God. Thanks, guys, appreciate it. And then in just a moment, I'm gonna be quiet. I'm gonna have you, just gonna walk through the exercise. And this is our preparation to go to the communion table exercise. This is how we're gonna prepare ourselves to go to the table. I want you to read through Philippians 4, 6 through 7. It's on your notes there in your bulletin. I want you to read it through slowly three times. And I just want you to let those words rest in your mind. And then I want you to write on the index card the specific things that right now in your life you are wrestling with anxiety about. You're dealing with anxious stuff around what? To be very specific. Okay, this is just between you and God. You're not sharing these with anyone unless you want to, but this is between you and the Lord. So I want you to fill up that index card with specific things you're most anxious about as you sit here today. And then step five, is ask yourself if there's anything you can do to remedy those situations and commit yourself to do it. Do what you can. It was C.S. Lewis who said this. I put the quote in your notes. If a person has weeds in his garden, he shouldn't pray about the weeds, but go pull them up. Exactly. So there's some very specific things that on our list of anxiety that perhaps we can do something about. So I'll Recently, I heard someone say that they were wound up with anxiety and concern for three years over a certain medical situation with their body, but they were refusing to go and get the test. So they finally concluded that if they wanted to deal with all the worry and anxiety about it, they had been praying about it, but it was still filled with worry anxiety. You know what he decided to do? He just went to the doctor and got the test and dealt with the results, whatever they were. And guess what happened to the worry and anxiety around all that? It was gone. So you do what you can in the strength that you have is my point, right? So just ask yourself, hey, on this specific list, are there anything that I can do? Is there some weeds I can just pull up and get about doing it? And then step six, key one, turn everything else over to God. So look at your list, do what you can, and then turn everything else over to God. I want you to do this right now over the next few minutes. Go ahead, Greg, start the playlist. You can just start uh, listening to some music in the background here. And then in a few minutes, I'm gonna lead us through a prayer and then we're gonna go to the table. But I really want you to carry this. I want you to carry this note card around all week long. And I want you to revisit this note card throughout the week. I want you to come back to it. I want you to make edits on it, comments, mark some other things, maybe write some ways God showed you some stuff in it, add some stuff. You might need multiple cards, who knows? Whatever you need, but keep before you Philippians 4, 6, and 7 and this statement. I am a child of God, one in whom Christ dwells, and I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. So you do that now for the next couple of minutes, and then I'll dismiss us to the table.